On this episode of Create the Village, the outrage is not contagious as it was in the George Floyd case, but it ought to be because we're not talking about eight minutes and 46 seconds. We're talking about the knee on the neck for year in, year out, decade after decade, generation after generation. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. As explored in last week's episode of Create the Village, and as unpleasant as it is to acknowledge, our nation has a history of systematically segregating ignoring and exploiting those who can be redlined, disregarded, and oppressed. Systemic racism, structural racism, or institutional racism, choose your poison, is when you find systems and structures that have procedures or processes that disadvantage non-whites. Surprisingly, and in the dramatic break from tradition, the topic systemic racism is an element of the current political campaigns for the highest offices in the land. Candidates for president, Senate, and Congress are being compelled to stake out positions on the occurrence, or as some political TV analysts would like to believe, the fallacy of systemic racism. This turn of events and others suggest we're on the cusp of change, transition, and of course, disappointment change and transition because they can be natural byproducts of any substantive conversation during a political campaign. Disappointment because whatever happens at the polls in 2020, we know it won't be enough. Which leads me to this. A clear-eyed review of demographic trends shows a handful of important shifts in our country. Income disparity is an issue. Incomes are rising in the U.S., but the increase is not being felt equally by all Americans. The share of Americans who are in the middle class has fallen over the last several decades. About half, more like 52% of adults, were considered middle class in 2016. And that's down from 61% in 1971. Second trend, as voters are casting their ballots in this year's election, the largest racial or ethnic minority group in the U.S. electorate is Latinx or Hispanic. The number of eligible voters who are Latinx, 32 million, has surpassed that of the black eligible voters, which stands at 30 million for the first time. And that's according to Pew Research Center. And the third trend, Millennials are the largest adult generation in the United States. Beginning in 2019, millennials, that's those ages 24 to 39, outnumbered baby boomers ages 56 to 74, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, I'm not a prognosticator, but I understand trends. And suffice it to say, public policies and investments will soon reflect these demographic shifts as C-suites and elected legislative bodies reflect those demographic trends. 
One other statistic to share. We do not have enough data to describe it as a trend, but I would say it is certainly worth paying attention to. Travis County, Texas, also known as Austin, has more than 850,000 eligible voters. Local officials announced this week that 97% of them have registered to vote. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said 97%, an unheard of statistic that is setting the stage for a historic voter turnout. In this week's episode, we avoid partisan issues, but we talk about the lasting effects of structural decisions made by political governance, governance that is emerging in the wake of decades of policies that intentionally advantage some over others. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Each week, Egbert Perry and his longtime collaborator Rick White take a deep dive into one of the competing factors that determine the health of a community. Here's Rick White. When you think about where we are, we, in a previous episode, we, we spoke about sort of where the country is in terms of all that's going on right now with health and the, what's happening in the streets and the economic realities of 2020. When you, when you think about more abstract issues along the lines of community development, what are some things in history, either recent history or, or ancient history for that matter, meaning in the last 20 years, uh, that opinion leaders, business leaders, elected officials, community leaders, et cetera, should be interested in when it comes to thinking about community development? What are some things that would help when going into a community, going into a city and talking about doing massive projects that are community oriented, what could folks learn to put them all on the same page to make things easier in that heavy lift? That's a great question for a lot of reasons at the obvious or superficial level, as well as when you take it down deeper. The truth is, in much the same way I was personalizing my experience as a way of framing what I thought a community development vision or strategy should be, I would say if everyone thought of the work as being something that was going to be directed towards them or their family as individuals, they would approach it differently. So for example, if you don't want to live in a certain kind of place, not because it's just a different taste bud, but that you don't think it's safe or sufficiently nice or whatever, then you shouldn't think that that's what those other people should have. If you're creating a school that you wouldn't send your kids to, then you shouldn't think that that's the school that those people should go to. If you put in something in a neighborhood and not addressing the kinds of things that would make it such that you would want to be in that neighborhood, you shouldn't be doing that. Until you can personalize the work that you're doing and say, this is community development, I'm building a 
a community here. I'm not just throwing up something. The minute you get to a point where you take it personal, just like that, then you have a chance of creating good outcomes. I think too often people with resources trying to do good are trying to do it without seeing it as through the lens of something that they would think is good. They're thinking, I'm just doing something good for these people. They ought to be glad that I'm doing something and they should celebrate. So just purely transactional. Exactly. And, and, and it's done. And I've done this. I feel good. I can pat myself on the back and move on. But God forbid, if my daughter or son or so said, oh, you know, that place you're, I'm going to live there. All of a sudden, what we would think that that community needs would all of a sudden change. Because now we can relate to, oh, well, if Mary or Jane or Diane is going to live there. No, I want to make sure it's safe. I want to make sure there's better lighting. I want to make sure that there's a nice park. I want to make sure that this and that and all these things they think of all of a sudden when it's for someone they care about. And I would say if you start off trying to achieve the full Monty and you just for financial reasons and other have to cut back on some things, that's one way to go about it, but you don't start from the low low basis and think, okay, let me add this and add this and add this. No, you start from what would it need to have to be a great community, a great, great housing in a great neighborhood. And then, okay, my pocket is only this deep. What do I take away first without diminishing the value and the experience? Uh, tremendously. Okay, what do I take away next? And what do I take away next? So start with start with the transformational, not the transactional. That's right. You start at the start at the big the grand vision, and you may have to cut back on your vision. But if you start low, you're starting wrong. There's no way you're going to ever end up in but, a great. But cities have to make choices all the time. I mean, elected officials and, and, and appointed officials, city officials have to make choices about, and usually it's around money, right? And so it, you can't always fund the big idea, the transformational idea. Yeah, yes, but you're making my point exactly. I am saying, I am saying that if you started out saying, okay, you know what? I am going to, I, want, I know what the grand vision ought to look like. But I need to, I don't have the resources to carry out that grand vision. What you would end up doing is putting the bones in place for something that you can over time build out that vision. But if you start with something that is driven only by what's the lowest cost I can incur and deliver on this, I assure you the decisions you make will not be able to take additional investment on top of them because you would have started with a low basis. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, it's the classic triad, right? Time, people, and money, right? If you've got, you got time as a variable, money as a variable, and who's doing it? What is the best school I can go to if my, if the field of study I want to pursue is such and such? And that's where you set your sights. Okay, now... You may know your family is poor, 
and will never be able to afford that. But maybe because that's what you aspire to achieve, you do exceptionally well in school and therefore somebody recognizes it and you get a scholarship. But if you had started out saying, I really want to be a whatever that profession is, but my family doesn't really have the money. So I'm going to go to community college at such and such a place. And maybe the entry requirements are not as stringent or as rigorous. So I know I can get in. So I can skate through um, high school, don't really have to study and so on. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize, you know what? I really wanted to do this, but now you didn't prepare. You didn't lay the foundation. You didn't do the early work to be eligible to get into that great school. You can't just correct that overnight. If you started off wrong, incorrectly, it's not easy to change midstream and fix it. So you have to start off viewing the full vision and then make decisions to curb aspects of it to compensate for the fact that you don't have the resources. And the real dangerous part of what you're describing is, is one thing whenever you're talking about your own education or your children's education in your, right. in your story, but it's particularly dangerous when you're talking about somebody else's children, right? And, it, and you start making compromises on somebody else's future and what their access to upward mobility is. That's right. In fact, I would say the, the sick world that we live in today which is really sick because winners and losers were driven along racial lines. When you have whole countries deciding that they're going to assume the worst or shoot, have a, a particular population, have their aspirations set based on some low standard and therefore deny them an opportunity to be inside of that grand vision, that society, that country, that community, whatever, pays a price because they've already robbed a whole significant portion of their human resources of ever being able to achieve their full potential because they made a decision on the front end that sentenced those individuals. And you can't wake up the next day and say, oh, I changed my mind. Let me change the dynamic and expect an outcome when it takes, or expect a great outcome when it takes a generation or decades or whatever to build the kind of foundation that would have made the high goals possible or achievable. So we have basically sacrificed future economic development potential in this country and in just about all the places created in the new world for people of color, because we made a we didn't make a decision. Some group made a decision that those people didn't matter. So, so we didn't have to set the high aspirations when it came to those people. We could work the other way. We could work from the bottom up. What is the minimum? we could invest in them and they be able to do the most basic things. 
but with our own children, it's what do we need to do to give them a chance to be rulers of the world, achieve their fullest God-given potential, etc., etc. And now we have the gap, and we're trying to determine how we close that gap. And we're looking for simple answers. They are not simple answers. That's why they call them systemic problems, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The system was set in motion to get the outcomes that we're getting today. And, and, and unless, you, unless you blow that bloody system up, change it at its core, you are continuing to produce the outcomes we're getting today. And you mean that metaphorically, of course. The, Absolutely. Yeah. So the, yeah, a, a bomb wouldn't do it. <laughs> a, a bomb wouldn't do the blowing up that I'm talking about. Yeah. The blowing up I'm talking about is you've got to rethink these institutions at their core because they were never designed for people of color to ever be successful. Well, and the irony is, as you are outlining, it, it ends up for the people who are making those decisions, although it's taken generations, it's actually a counterproductive strategy. It actually ends up working against the very people who propped it up. Absolutely. No question. And, and of course, that's, you know, you can only create heaven and hell, but so many times and not expect, or so many hells and not expect hell to eventually contaminate heaven. So why not create sustainable communities where you aren't drawing the stark lines of winners and losers? But that's what community development is. You're creating communities. Instead, what we've done is we've created heavens and hells. Right. And actually, the metaphor that you were, uh, the, the picture you were painting is both micro and macro, right? Is that oh, societal as well as right down to the neighborhood? If you absolutely, if you're not thinking about what this neighborhood is going to look like or should look like rather in 30 or 40 years, and you're just looking for the quick fix, then you're actually selling yourself and the community short. Correct. Uh, you know, I think of places where the systems were so, so, so dramatic that it was obvious to everyone that it was wrong. But the reality is there are so many other places where it's not as obvious, but it is just as wrong and it's just as damaging. So a policy that flies under the radar but accomplishes the same bad outcomes in some respects is worse because it can live longer doing bad things or creating bad outcomes than the more obvious uh, in-your-face practices that anyone can say, oh, well, that's just bad. That's just inhumane. That's just inappropriate. So you can lynch somebody. You can do a George Floyd and get everybody's emotion because it's right in your face. You saw it. No decent human being can think that was ever appropriate. But I dare say that metaphorically, that's happening in just about every profession across the country, in every city, every day. It's just not showing up as somebody having their knee on the neck of somebody until physical. 
That's right. And but it's still it's still a matter of blocking somebody from getting into the boardroom or or that getting that promotion or whatever it may be. Yeah, or just getting a decent education that gives them a start in life. You know, so so it may not be as the outrage is not contagious as it was in the George Floyd case, but it ought to be because we're not talking about eight minutes and 46 seconds. We're talking about the knee on the neck for year in, year out, decade after decade, generation after generation. I dare say that that's damn sure a hell of a lot more damaging than the eight minutes and 46 seconds we saw, notwithstanding that, don't ask George Floyd that because obviously he lost his life in the most horrific way. So I don't want to diminish that. But I would say that their necks, their knees on the necks of people of color in this country and across the new world, in just about every walk of life, it does not engender the spontaneous and extreme outrage that the George Floyd murder at the hands of police brought out, but it ought to, because there are millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of lives that are destroyed by those other versions of the knee on the neck. They just don't bring out that outrage because they don't shock your conscience and your sensibilities and you're not seeing them in your face quite the same way. And that's what, when you don't care about the other people, you can do just about anything without conscience and not think, have to think about it because the results, the badness of it doesn't slap you in the face right away, quite the way that that incident did for so many people. And there's a, there's a, a as powerful as that was, there, it, we shouldn't think that it's just limited to race in class, right? That, right. That, that there are city leaders, elected officials all across this country who are making decisions about the others, even when sometimes those others look like they do. Yes. And, and they're making decisions about how cities are developed, how neighborhoods are developed, where resources are going to be allocated, et cetera. So I want to bring it back just to city planning just for a moment. But when you think about where we are, because I think we're in a very different time. Forget 2020, because 2020 has been sort of an aberration. But if you look at the last, say, 15 years, the way that cities have been, and the way the government in general has been operating, it's a very, it's a, there's, a, there's a, almost a sense of cruelty. Um, there's no real optimism in, baked into a lot of what's going on in cities and states across the country. First off, would you agree with that? And and if so, what what are some of the things that you think local and state governments should change the way that maybe we've done over the last 15, 20 years? You know, Rick, the probably the thing I think that gets in the way of effective city planning has everything to do with the artificial the artificial boundaries that we have created that 
take problems that are more macro or regional or community-wide and try to fix them within specific geographical boundaries. So for example, uh, uh, well, so that's one thing and I'll explain it in a minute. And the other thing is this thing called elections, these four-year windows. And I'll do that one first. Very few problems that require transformational thinking can ever truly be addressed within election cycles. And so we have entrusted real problem solving. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? Because of the time frame? Yes. The time it takes to make to implement something truly transformational usually means that the parties who see the fruit and benefit from the fruit from that tree, you know, you plant a tree and the person who sits under the tree years later and, and enjoys its shade is probably not the person that planted the tree. Well, it's the same thing with transformational work. If you're doing the heavy lift that's going to pay dividends, your early years are investments. And those investments don't yield returns, great returns, until later. And if you're in politics and you're thinking about one year into office, you're already in a discussion about your next election. The decisions you support, unless you're on an unusual individual, the decisions you support tend to be driven in part, in large part, by what it needs to look like when you're running for re-election. And it sometimes causes short-sighted, limited impact decisions to be made in lieu of the more strategic, transformational, long-lasting and sustainable ones. And so that politics of trusting these solutions to politicians is, is bad. And I don't, I'm not making politicians bad. That's just a construct. You must have some way to put people into office. And the way we do it means that you're asking people to make a lot of decisions such that when the time comes to run for office again, you are going to have to show that you have done A, B, and C. And if A, B, and C can't get done in a time such that they can bear fruit three or four years later when you're running for office, you don't do it. Now, the right situation can be that you can do some of those, some short-term impacts and some long-term impacts. But life doesn't necessarily present itself that way all the time. So I would say some of the more important and long-term things cannot be trusted to politicians. We have to establish ways of... And, and trusted, trusted, you mean, because they don't have the skill set or the timelines, or what, 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 what do you mean trusted? We cannot trust... Let's take away politicians, for example, for a minute. You cannot put something that requires stay in the course for a long period of time, an extended period of time, to get the outcome. You can't put that in the hands of individuals with the shelf life horizon time horizon is exactly short and so the question is how do you build into 
the governance and oversight structure, something that spans multiple administrations or an extended period of time to take all of those short-term thinkers out of being the influences of whether or not these things get right. that, that that actually gets it to exactly to the point i was trying to make is that it seems like there was a time in our not too distant past where there was an expectation that government was going to do something good and then at some point the politics became government is always bad and so therefore it, it created this very short time frame that you're referring to which then ends up creating a contraction of ability for government to actually do big major projects anymore. Yeah, you know, that the way I look at it, and very similar to what you just said is, when government was sort of part-time, it wasn't viewed as, when politics wasn't the career, then people were invest in their time to get something done. And so they were using their time wisely to drive those outcomes. When politics became the career in and of itself. So the job was to get into office and stay into office. I think that colored the picture a little bit. And so the end result is staying in office became more important than getting done the things that probably drove you to service to begin with. And, and that's a problem. I mentioned two things. I said the time horizon, and I said the geographical boundaries. If you have a housing crisis, the city X, li the line for city X ends at this point, and a new city starts next door, across the street. But the issue of the housing crisis doesn't know that we just crossed the street and we're in another jurisdiction. So these artificial boundaries we've created means that our ability to solve real and important and complex problems requires a level of collaboration across those jurisdictional lines that we really don't have because of the growing tribalism that we have in our politics. So the end result is the people sort of be damned, as in becoming secondary to the politics of it all. And, and I think that's a big part of what we are dealing with in our cities. We have problems that need to be solved regionally, but they are being tackled by the, the many sub-jurisdictions within that region in different ways. So you get a lot of not so good outcomes. And I'll give you one classic example. You have a city government that is one body, but you have a school system that's another political body. Yet a, an effective school system is an important part of economic development in a city but they have their own. How, how and why, very quickly, how and why is uh, a school system related to economic development? Well, an educated workforce, a trained workforce, etc., is one of the key assets of a, a strong city, right? So, ability to lure people to come to the city and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, so if you don't have a good educational system, 
the attractiveness diminishes dramatically. Um, so the end result is you need to be able to have cooperation between those two bodies. You can look across the country and you'll, you're shocked to see how many school systems are fighting with the city government and city government fighting with the school system, fighting with each other, if you will. Um, when in fact, they're supposed to be making complementary investments to build a strong city and a, a strong community. And so the same constituents, aren't they? They are, exactly. That's when politics, and I don't subscribe to politics is bad or politicians are bad or politicians are good and politics is good. They are a reflection of the people that we elect to office, or what they stand for and how strong our systems are for getting them out of office if they're not doing what they're supposed to and keeping them in office if they're doing what they're supposed to. And so we get the, the leadership we deserve over time. And so I'm, I don't fall into that, let's put a label on it. What I would say is the, the politics of politics gets in the way of good governance. And so the end result is it's usually a rare situation where you find a city where all of these constituents are working together. Because sometimes there is more to be gained by showing up or being adverse to the other side than it is working together. And as long as that's the dynamic, we're on the, we're on the wrong path to building healthy communities. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.